Welcome to episode 6 of the Floss for Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, David and I are interviewing Christian Horea, who initiated Chanto Linux for Neuroscience. Hi, Christian. Thank you for being with us. Could you please introduce yourself and briefly explain your current research to us? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so my name is Christian. I'm a neuroscientist. I study for my main work uh, at the University of Zurich and at the ETH Zurich, actually mainly, um, different neurotransmitter systems in the brain, which control um, emotion, motivation, and the perception of social status. Uh, so these are called like the monoamine neurotransmitter systems. Uh, and for this, I basically stimulate different neurons in the, mouse, uh, in the brains of uh, mice. And then I measure the activity at the whole brain level with uh, magnetic resonance, biomagnetic resonance. Uh, and in addition to this, we, of course, have a number of uh, associated behavioral tests and other things. So we're basically looking at how um, these neuronal populations control activity in the brain, uh, whether or not this activity control is associated with any behavior, and how we can modulate all of this by giving uh, different um, different drugs to the animals, basically. Um the palette is quite wide because most drugs of interest, so the majority, I'd say, I'd even dare say, of uh, psychotropic, psychotropic drugs you've heard about act primarily on these systems, on the monoamine systems. They're like uh, major hubs of uh, the unconscious activity of the brain, which is the most interesting thing that people would like to control because, of course, you can control the conscious part uh, by default, more or less. So... Um, yeah, basically, that's what we're looking into. And in order to support the complex data analysis, which arises from this mix of techniques, I um, also program a lot. For data analysis, I develop a couple of free and open source toolkits. Uh, a number of them I've started myself, and uh, I integrate all of this via the amazing Gentoo Linux distribution. Okay, thanks for introducing your research. And you mentioned the Gentoo Linux for a neuroscience distribution. Mm -hmm. Could you explain to us what it is and who are using it? I, I'd assume mo most of your listeners are familiar with what the Linux distribution is. It's basically a, a way to wrap up the, the kernel and the new use land with accessibility to, to multiple other software packages. And very often, very many Linux distributions are basically a developer or a group of developers saying, well, okay, this mix of software, or at least this mix of versions makes sense. Uh, and we're going to make sure that we have support for this, this, and that. And we're just going to serve it to the user on a plate. And we're going to make updates for them. And that's going to be really cool. And we're going to put something together which is amazing and which we think addresses exactly the needs which should be addressed. Uh, Gentoo is a much more, um, how do you say, free uh, and uh, flexible uh, approach to distribution. I like to tell people uh, Gen 2 is to either Linux distributions what the Linux distributions are to, to proprietary software, simply because the core philosophy of Gen 2 is to make as few choices as possible for the user. Uh, certainly no choices on the surface, so no choices in um, what, uh, what kind of web browser you might need or what kind of window manager you might need, but also no choices at the lower levels of the system so that everybody can decide what they want to have and custom build, so to say, their their software environment for their specific needs. Uh, this is more or less the, the core philosophy and the method in which Gentoo goes about doing this uh, perhaps doesn't result like logically from the philosophy, but it goes together very well with this philosophy, namely, uh, unlike very many other uh, Linux distributions, which um, pre-compile binaries, so they take the source code, which other programmers wrote, 
and transform it into binary packages, which they then host and distribute to their users, uh, Gentoo has a source-based model, meaning that um, what Gentoo does simply in most, yeah, most simple terms is it gives uh, each and every Gentoo user the tools to automatically get and install the software they need. So basically, Gentoo is uh, automatization of your freedom of choice in, in all things software. Uh, meaning that uh, Gentoo generally tries to not distribute binaries. Uh, sometimes we do uh, for really big packages, but for all packages in Gentoo, you have the choice to uh, to get them directly from source and compile them yourself. This might sound complicated, but this is something which Gentoo handles internally. So, I mean, to your the second part of your question, if I haven't deviated too much in this explanation, uh, you asked who it, who who this might be for, um, and I'd say it's um, it's basically for Everybody which um, has an idea um, about the things which they'd like to do with their computer. Uh, so in, in my eyes, it could and, and should be for almost everybody. Of course, there, there are people who just use the computer to like browse the web and have like no, no specific preferences in terms of a browser or anything else. Uh, for them, this, this might be less interesting, but for everybody else, I mean, even if you're a simple quote unquote, simple office worker. So with no particular technical expertise, uh, if you have like a, um, a set of preferences and a couple of well-defined workflows and you'd like sure to make sure that your system can address those optimally and isn't burdened by a lot of other nonsense, then I think Gentoo might actually be for you. Okay. And what are the goals or the main goals of this project if one ask you, can you describe the goal of this project in two sentences? What would you say? So the goal of uh, Gentoo Linux or the goal of uh, NeuroGentoo? NeuroGentoo. So in two sentences, ah, challenge. Uh, so I'd say that the goal of Gentoo Linux is to bring neuroscientific software to Gentoo. And perhaps even more importantly than that, uh, to bring Gentoo to neuroscientific software. Okay. Could you briefly summarize some key package, including in the Gentoo Neural Linux uh, distribution? So, I mean, one one thing to uh, I'd like to correct is um, it's not a distribution, right? So, uh, as I said previously, like distributions are these like generally software bond bundles, uh, where in in the case of of Gentoo, it's more of like a software management concept. Um, NeuroGentoo is not a distribution in its own right, and we don't want to be uh, actually quite adamantly because there's no point to diverge from Gentoo because Gentoo gives us all we need, right? Uh, we're also not about just uh, putting a lot of neuroscience packages on the computer for every user. What we want to do is to make sure that the users of Gentoo uh, have the option to get uh, any and all neuroscientific software they might need. So it's basically always Gentoo. It's nothing different. It's just uh, the capabilities of Gentoo extended into even more software packages. So with that clarification, to get back to answering your question, um, I'd say that one of the packages which I use the most is uh, NiPipe. It's a um, pipelining package. It's actually quite quite an interesting package in its own right, uh, simply because, uh, I mean, You're probably familiar with scientific software and you know that a lot of uh, scientific software toolkits tend to be bloated and convoluted and have a lot of uh, legacy elements inside. And of course, that's not different for neuroscience, uh, meaning that it's really hard to refactor like the big, big players, so to say. 
Um, and of course, software development, however, evolves rapidly and Python is definitely on the rise and people like Python and Python is easy and uh, more and more Python is actually fast. Uh, so um, the idea of NyPipe was to take the capabilities of Python, like the flexibility and logic, the ease of use, and to um, allow you to interface via this um, programming language in which you can also manipulate other things about your data with, so to say, the big established software packages, right? Uh, so now you can write a Python pipeline for your neuroscientific so um, data analysis, uh, which can actually use these big old players, which are very feature rich. Uh, they're very referenced. So they have credibility in the community. It's not like a completely new package, uh, but you can interface with them without having to break everything down at the level of the bash shell. Or you can do it from like the rich environment in Python. So this is very cool. Uh, it allows us to automate and parallelize a lot of our work. Um, and another piece of software, which I use a lot is called Samurai. It's the main data analysis toolkit of our lab. It's basically, it basically stands for small animal magnetic resonance imaging. It's, um, I'd say nothing else, although it's quite intricate. Uh, I'd stay with nothing else. It's nothing else than a set of pipelines for, uh, the analysis of small animal magnetic resonance imaging data. Most of them, not all of them built via NiPipe. So it's a, a very high level interface where you can do all of your data analysis uh, and a lot of parameters for the analysis are determined intelligently and automatically based on the input data. And the rest is like highly parameterized. Uh, but one thing I'd like to add though is, um, it's not really about making a choice for the user of a, a limited set of software packages. It's our ambition to to basically have every single notable neuroscientific uh, software package inside, simply because this just means that you have the possibility to get it. It's not like everything is shipped at once. Uh, in Gentoo, you install things by simply typing emerge and then the name of the package. So ideally, any neuroscientific software package you know of or you might need, you can get on your Gentoo computer by just typing emerge and the name of that and everything else is handled be behind the scenes. Okay. Uh, but uh, when you're talking about big neuro uh, package software, uh, I'm not in, in, in neuroscience, so I don't know which one you're talking about, actually. Uh, could you yeah. enlighten some of our listeners about those? Yeah, so I mean, of course, neuroscience is multifaceted. Uh, I'm talking mainly about brain imaging because this is my current line of work. Uh, and in neuroimaging, you basically have three big uh, established uh, toolkits. Um, one of them is called AFNI. I forget what the name stands for, or it might actually not stand for, stand for anything and just have some background name interpretation. Uh, it's basically a neuroimaging data analysis toolkit made by the NIH. Uh, NIH. Yeah, NIH. Yeah, in the United States, uh, there's FSL, the FEMRIB software library. This uh, this is another toolkit which does basically the exact same thing. It's um, it's been written primarily at the at the FEMRIB in Oxford, uh, and there is SPM. Uh, SPM is a bit weirder than the other two, simply because it's not really a, a library in its own right, but it's a set of uh, instructions for MATLAB which basically can do the same thing as the other two. And it comes from the UCL primarily. Uh, so these are like the three big players. And whenever you see fMRI pictures, so that's those like really colorful uh, 
well, colorful heat map to depictions of the brain where you have like a, a grayscale brain in the background and then you have uh, red and, and yellow and white dots on it. Uh, they generally come from uh, one of these three uh, packages. Yeah. And of course, all, all three of them are available via our initiative, so to say, for Gentle Linux, with a special caveat in the case of SPM, uh, simply because it depends on MATLAB and not really possible to compile it with Octave. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, we have it, but uh, I don't use it. And if anybody else wants to use it, they'd probably have to write me a couple of, uh, of emails and I'd have to fix a few things up, yeah. Okay, so SPM or SPN, uh, I don't know which name it is. Uh, is yes, it SPM. SPM, okay, so it is not uh, compatible with, completely compatible with Octave at the moment? Yes, so it uh, it sadly has, um, so I don't know actually about the um, the absolutely newest stand. I actually worked quite a lot on, on making the package. It was two years ago. And the status two years ago was that um, the pipelining part of SPM which if you're trying to do batch analysis, it's like the, the most important part, uh, somehow in some uh, fairly unobvious way depends on the graphical user interface elements. And as you might know, uh, Octave compatibility with MATLAB is quite high, uh, except that uh, Octave lacks a lot of the GUI features of MATLAB, meaning that all of that breaks apart. Um, I forgot. I forget his name, sadly. However, there is one researcher at the UCL who is working really, really hard on this. And uh, maybe he's actually made progress, though I've I've made my choices on what toolkits I'm going to use back then, and I haven't really looked at SPM in the meantime. Okay, so it would need a transition layer to be compatible with Octave. Which might have already been done by this researcher, yeah. Oh, okay, good. Also, there's a um, set of package in Debian called NeuroDebian. Mm -hmm. um, could you highlight the difference between uh, Gentle Linux for Neuroscience and NeuroDebian? Yeah, so NeuroDebian is um, the currently the only other alternative of getting uh, neuroscientific software on Linux without, of course, managing it completely manually. Uh, NeuroDebian is basically the same thing, except it's uh, following the concept of Debian, which is a binary distribution. Uh, this means that NeuroDebian is basic, basically a repository of binaries uh, from which you as a user can take what you need. Uh, of course, it has all of the limitations and the extra overhead, which uh, which go along with, with being a repository. Uh, whenever I give presentations, I have like a nice figure where I show that, like if you imagine one box, which is upstream, so where the source code is developed and hosted, and another box, which is your computer, uh, Nero Debian, or basically Debian in general, if we're not, or any binary distribution in general, if you're not talking about neuroscientific software specifically, is like a third box in the middle, uh, where they basically, basically take the stuff from upstream, compile it themselves, hold on to it themselves, and then give it to you when you request it. Um, Neurogento is completely different. Neurogento is simply a set of instruction files on your computer. So I, I, I draw that as like an, an empty parenthesis, which, uh, which allows you to connect directly to upstream, get the, um, get the source code and compile it locally. And of course, all of this is done automatically. Like, uh, using Gentoo is really not complicated. And this has a number of advantages. Uh, of course, we don't have to host anything, meaning that our, uh, we're, we're much more uh, maintainable in that sense. Um, we don't have to compile everything, meaning that we can treat live software just as, as well as we treat like version software. So if you want software based, like just the newest version from the head of the development branch, you can get that, no issues. 
you can even get software based on the commit simply because we don't have to host anything. So there's really no limit uh, to the granularity with which you can make software accessible to you. And there is a very fine point, which um, I mean, I don't know how savvy most of your authors, uh, listeners are, but uh, I'm, I'm sure some of them will understand it. Namely, whenever you compile um, a piece of software, there's there's a question of how you link different libraries into it. So you can do dynamic linking or you can do static linking. Static linking basically means as much as that you include another library in the new in the new program which you are compiling. Uh, and the problem with static libraries is uh, even if you update the library, basically what has been included in other programs doesn't really change, right? Uh, the Gen2 package manager has a really nice way of keeping track of this and, if alerting, uh, and of alerting you if uh, a library which has been statically included in one of your other packages is now at a considerably newer version. So maybe you should recompile. Uh, whereas if you take binary packages down from a repository, it difficult for you to find out even uh, what kind of uh, static libraries are in the, the, the bundles which, which are compiled and which you download, meaning that, there, that there's also a significant cost of uh, transparency associated with binary distribution. So I'd say that these are the core differences to summarize everything. And if what I've said has, has not been perfectly understandable, um, we're doing mainly the same thing. We're doing it in a more streamlined way where we where we don't manage things for you and you basically have the power and the freedom to take to take the code from upstream. And we're also addressing software distribution in a more transparent way simply because everything is done locally. So if you want to inspect anything and document it, you can. Yeah, so if you compile locally uh, your software, you're not uh, forced to use the same dependencies as what's in your uh, distribution. You can you can be much more nimble and update those and then recompile your software to uh, take into consideration new packages you have installed. So it gives you more flexibility, I would say. Mm -hmm. Okay, but I have one question because you were mentioned that you do not have to host anything, but when I type emerge and i want to install a specific package mm -hmm. where does emerge get the install script from our how does it work because i think you have to host or store somewhere this install script so i can download it on my machine to get all the dependencies or where do the script come from so i mean of course we we don't store anything is uh is a i'd say only a mild exaggeration simply because if we wouldn't be storing anything there would be no information content uh but we don't st store any of the software we really just store these scripts which are generally uh some of them uh yeah kilobytes or some of them even less uh super small they're simply bash scripts in many cases they're not even bash scripts they're just collections of variables defined in bash which Portage, the package manager of Gentoo, knows how to interpret automatically. And uh, they're currently tracked over Git. Uh, so basically, the, um, uh, there's something which we call the, the Portage tree. So it's a big collection of these e-builds. Uh, still, it's quite small since the e-builds themselves are small, uh, which, which amounts to all e-builds, uh, like instructions for all pieces of software to which Gentoo can give you access to. And you can synchronize this automatically. Uh, I do it via cron job, so it happens without me even knowing um, once a day, I think. Um, and basically, you you get those instructions from uh, from one of our very many mirrors locally, and then just with that, you're free to go. Meaning that if uh, Gentoo stopped uh, existing tomorrow, um, you'd still have everything you need 
to to install further things because uh, all of the instructions to get all of the software are on your computer right now. Um, and if you know anything about Bash, you could even continue maintaining them and update them in the absence in the absence of uh, of Gen two upstream. Simply because very often updating a package, updating one of these instruction files, just means changing the number in the in the file name. Uh, so it's it's really easy. It's really streamlined. Okay, so now we have heard a lot of build instructions, Bash, and compiling. And maybe a user who wants to use open source software to address the openness of science. Yeah. Do you think that some people are maybe scared about all this stuff to compile their own software or what do you think about this? Because I could think that some users who are not really into programming or computer science are maybe scared to use Gentoo mm -hmm. because all of the stuff. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case, and it's something which uh, I generally avoid saying because I don't want to propagate the, this uh, untrue stereotype. But now that you mention it, yes, very many people have precisely this impression, uh, and perhaps they might have it even more having listened to to what I just said previously. Uh, but um, I know. Have you ever read the Zen of Python? No. Okay, so the the Zen of Python is a small is a short poem more or less it doesn't really rhyme it's a short um, collection of uh, of one line wisdoms about uh, how to code elegantly in python and uh, somewhere it says that um, simple is better than complex but complex is better than complicated or something along those lines uh, and i find the distinction between um, complex and complicated very good because what uh, gentoo does internally is uh, extremely complex However, it is not at all complicated because a lot of work has gone into finding intelligent and easily maintainable solutions. Um, in addition to that, the user interface, the very upper layer, it's not complex. It's simple. Uh, so as I said, get a piece of software on, on Gentoo, you open the terminal, you type emerge and then the name. Um, this is compared to Windows, for instance much easier, right? You don't have to go to a website, click the link, download the package, double click that, give it permissions. No, none of that, right? So it is very simple. Uh, what I can say to prospective users is, um, hmm. yeah, I actually have um, an intro to free and open source software, which I give each semester at the university, like a lecture. And I like to tell a lot of people, you might, you might think Uh, that you need to be a programmer in order to understand all of this and to use all of this. And I can only give my own example. I started using Gentoo when I was 17. Uh, I did not have informatics in school, meaning that the only, well, actually I did, but we learned uh, uh, HTML. So I, I didn't really learn to program anything in school. Uh, so I was definitely not a programmer when I started. And by the way, Gentoo back then was a lot uh, less uh, complex and more complicated than it is now. Uh, what happened is without even realizing it and without even getting the um, impression that I expended a lot of uh, a lot of effort, uh, I became someone who is uh, good at programming or, or at the very least good at scripting simply by virtue of using it. So I, what I tell people is you don't need to be good with computers to start using it. Uh, but as soon as you're going to start using it, you will automatically and I dare say without even noticing and without breaking a sweat, become good with computers uh, because what you learn when you use Gentoo is uh, how how to best organize software on a computer. What you learn when you use very many other distributions is how to interface with their 
well, not, not necessarily proprietary, but at least bundled concept of, uh, of interfacing with, uh, with their complex um, set of, uh, of software and of choices which have been made for you. Okay, so let us think about the use case that some of our listeners is now really amazed of this Neurochantu. What do you think, or can you estimate how long it would take for a user who never used Chantu to install it and use his first neuroscience package? Mm -hmm. So currently there is a, a rather significant discrepancy in um, installing Gentoo on a physical machine and installing Gentoo on a virtual machine. So I, I told you previously about the fact that uh, Gentoo puts um, flexibility and freedom of choice uh, first. Um, And that's also true when we're talking about hardware, right? Uh, so ideally, a Gentoo kernel will, would also come with no choices made for you. Uh, so generally, if you install Gentoo on a physical machine the canonical way, uh, you will also have to compile your own kernel. Uh, I would like to tell everybody that that is super simple. Uh, the kernel has a really nice interface with all the documentation built in, which you can use to compile it. So um, if you can read and, and press buttons on the keyboard, you can compile it a kernel. Um, however, this uh, apparent uh, complication disappears when you're installing Gentoo on virtual machines, simply because virtual machines tend to have the same architecture. So what you do, meaning that there there is no room for this added freedom of choice and flexibility, simply because the architecture choice has already been made by the people who have set up the, the entire hosting system or the virtualization system. Uh, meaning that if you want to turn to on a virtual machine, uh, that is as easy as downloading an image, same as for any other distribution. So uh, if you want to start using something in the cloud, I'd say that um, it would take you to start using your first um, neuroscientific package. Well, the time it takes to, to boot the image, I can say about that. I mean, on, on our infrastructure, it takes about 20 seconds. Um, then you, of course, need to log in and to type the emerge command. Um, so maybe one minute until you've done all of that. And then you'd, of course, have to wait a bit for the compilation to take place simply because it's not just downloading a binary. It is compiling something on your computer. How, how long that will take depends on uh, the power of your machine. But I'd say um, half an hour, uh, out of which uh, only the first one minute involves you working on anything is a very good estimate for how long it would take you to start using a neuroscientific software package on Gen 2 uh, in a virtual environment. Um, you said that the, the kernel comes with no choice made if you, you're using real hardware, um, but no choice isn't that kind of a bit overwhelming for new users who are, may not know what each of these choices can do. Like n right now, it's not a case anymore, but by, by when we had X386, you could actually break your uh, CRT monitors if you didn't set some parameters properly. So some users might be afraid of all those choices. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not on the kernel team. Uh, I will say that no options chosen was mainly a, a reflection of the spirit behind the design rather than an actual description of the config file. Of course, not all options in the kernel would be set to N simply because if you set all of the options to N, there is nothing left to compile, right? Uh, it's just that a lot of the, not a lot, I'd say almost all of the hardware specific options are left out. Gentoo, so if you install Gentoo on a physical machine currently, although we are working on automating it, actually it's it's already automated, but the, the recommended way is still uh, to do it manually. 
uh, this this will definitely change within the next one, two, three years. Uh, the current method is you go through the Gentoo handbook, which is yeah an HTML document, which has all of the code you need to run uh, written there. So uh, if you can copy code from one place to another, uh, you can install Gentoo. You could do an exercise and prove to yourself that you can install Gentoo without learning anything. You could just copy paste the code, uh, which is why it wasn't that difficult to like automate it. Uh, but in between all of that, you have the explanations of uh, of the intricacies which might be involved. So, for instance, in the kernel section, uh, you are told that you should check whether some of the options relating to your processor are really matching what you have on your machine. You have um, a small section where you're told that you should uh, look with uh, with LSPCI what kind of, of network card you have to make sure that when you boot into your Gentoo system, you can actually use the, the internet and so on. Uh, so, of course, the, the kernel is like minimally working, but in addition to that, you will have to um, enable a set of options for your specific network card processor and so on. Um, and uh, once you've done that, which is a process where you're being in, in which you're being held by the hand, more or less, uh, you can boot it and you can start the yeah. so. Okay, great. Another important aspect of science is reproducibility of the published research. How does your project support data analysis reproducibility? So this was part of uh, the addendum, which I really wanted to make at the beginning, that we're not just about bringing um, uh, neuroscience to Gentoo, but also bringing Gentoo to neuroscience. The fact is that a lot of uh, scientific work nowadays uh, a lot more than people are ready to admit especially the most uh, the more senior people who are not involved in this process themselves by the way I, i'm not saying this as a sort of accusation it's just a, a statement of fact which results from from background and previous experience but uh, more and more uh scientific software so writing scientific software managing it and distributing it pro uh, properly uh, becomes an integral part of the research pro uh, progress. Uh, I like to tell people that uh, it's uh, more and more expedient and sensible to think of the computer as an extension of your brain, simply because your brain cannot do a number of things as well as the computer, for instance, do uh, repeated statistics very, very fast without getting anything wrong or almost anything wrong. And these are things which you have to outsource on your computer, right? Also, knowledge about how to run these statistics is better stored on the computer together with the rest of your script than it is in your head. Uh, so writing software, developing software, and using it in an intelligent and informed way is an integral part of the scientific process. What Gentoo does is it makes um, the management of the software much more transparent. I was talking about uh, binary issues. So simply if you distribute binary packages, it makes the amount of, uh, of introspection which you have into the software on your system much, much lower. Uh, it also makes the... Um, the general accessibility and potential for collaboration lower. I, I mentioned earlier how um, in Gentoo, because it's source-based, the live software, so the newest version of the software, is, uh, so to say, treated the same uh, as it's a first-class citizen, right? It's treated the same as any of the versions, meaning that if you want to manage software uh, in an automated way, which you are also developing at the same time, then Gentoo is an excellent choice. And since writing software is becoming a more and more integral part of science, uh, I think it is not at all unreasonable to say that more and more of the best scientists, even if their training is not in programming, will invariably also be programmers or at the very least also be scripters. 
um, and managing your workflow if you are such a person, which I'd assume very many are, perhaps even including you, uh, is made so much easier by, uh, by the source-based nature of Gentoo. Uh, of course, when you publish something, you're going to publish the data analysis and commonly a lot of papers have a method section where you give a text summary of what you've done in the analysis. Uh, the text format is neither appropriate nor sufficient to describe the intricacies of a data analysis pipeline, uh, meaning that ideally you would not write a method section, but distribute the code along with the paper or at least reference the code in the paper, right? Okay, like referencing specific version numbers for uh, some packages, for example? Exactly, exactly. However, no code exists on its own because these high-level libraries which you use to do your work uh, depend on very many other things, which depend on very many other things, right? And if you have like... um. I mean, none of this even works in a proprietary context, but even in other free and open source contexts, right? If you have binary bundles, so if you try to link someone to a Docker image and so on, okay, you might have halfway ticked the reproducibility box because people could pull that binary bundle and execute stuff themselves. But you have not ticked the transparency box because people would not be able to, to determine exactly what is in this bundle simply because the package manager does not track all of the relationships in the same way in which Portage has to track them simply because it manages source-based installations. Okay, so you mentioned Docker a little bit, and yeah, some people would recommend or suggest to use a Docker image for this task. What is your opinion on Docker images and cloud service to address the reproducibility? Okay, so... I mean, cloud, cloud services are definitely something different. And of course, cloud services, I think, are extraordinary simply because they allow you to, to scale more flexibly, flexibly, right? Uh, but talking about Docker in particular, I, I like to say Docker is a solution looking for a problem, right? Um, I do use it occasionally. Uh, I'm not like fundamentally against it, but I feel it has a lot of shortcomings which um, the more it is used, you know, like the community might settle on a really persistently suboptimal solution. Um, I think you can envision if you have to look for something good, you're going to look until you're going you're gonna to find it. But if you're given something which does like 60% of the job and it looks easy, you're going to say, yeah, whatever, I'm going to do that and, and not find a more sustainable solution, which in the end will cost you a lot of time and effort, right? So uh, my main problem with Docker is that uh, it is it is basically uh, bundling taken to the next level. Uh, bundling generally describes a practice of uh, distributing a software package, a high-level software package, together with all of its dependencies. Yeah? This is commonly done because people did not have access or knowledge of uh, intelligent and powerful package managers such as Portage. Uh, so in order to circumvent this issue and to no longer have to worry about it, they said, okay, we're going to wrap everything up in an archive and send it off to you. Yeah? Uh, this is, of course, very bad simply because there's no way of knowing. Like, of course, after you've installed it, you can try to introspect it and so on. But on the surface of it, like when you're trying to manage the, the software and describe what the software needs to run, there's no way of knowing uh, what versions are, like of all of the dependencies are in this bundle, right? Uh, if you have it on a system, you might have two different uh, packages, using a library, but using two different versions thereof. So you might be using um, 
scikit-learn, one version of scikit-learn in one package and one version in the other and get different results, uh, not because the higher level packages are different, but simply because they've bundled something different, right? Uh, Docker exacerbates it, this, this problem by taking it to the level of the entire operating system, right? Uh, so it's, it's much more than just having one package with, uh, un- improperly documented dependencies, but you're actually having an entire system with improperly documented dependencies. I envision someone writing a paper and distributing their software in a Docker image, right? And just providing a link to the Docker image. Okay, it's great. If I want to reproduce their work, I pull that Docker image and I run everything in the container and, and I see what happens, right? Uh, but if I want to know, okay, uh, in any other context, I'm trying to reproduce their work or I have a startup and I'm trying to make an embedded system which can reproduce part of their work. What on earth do I need in terms of dependencies? Will this work? Will this work? Well, no, I have to download the image and then I have to dig through it to, to find out what exactly is inside it simply because Docker does not have a standard for, for uh, keeping track of the entire dependency relationships of the underlying system, right? Uh, also, if used improperly, it will lead to huge images because people might not be aware that some of the things which, which they have there aren't really needed for the, um, for the particular piece of work which they're trying to to expose, uh, so this 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 problem goes really deep, and I can go in more detail if if you're specifically interested. But another thing which uh, I'd like to mention is that um, the virtualization concept of Docker is in in some in some regards revolutionary, simply because it does manage to do a number of things which uh, which you couldn't do with with previous concepts of virtualization. Um, however it still has a lot of virtualization overhead and it still has a lot of issues. So it's a, it adds a layer of complexity in itself. I, I use Docker, for instance, to, to create images to test my software. It's, it's a long story. I'm basically forced to use it simply because Travis CI uh, expects Docker images and it makes your life hard if you want to do, give it something else. Um, so I'm forced to use it because it's hip. Uh, but I do use it and it's not that bad. Um, however, uh, it, it has a lot of issues such as accumulating space for very many previously generated images, not having a particularly nice system to prune old images. So it does add a layer of complexity. There's a lot of overhead. Um, Gentoo has a system of addressing uh, quasi-virtualization, uh, so super thin virtualization via so-called prefix installs, where you can uh, install your... Um, uh, your new operating system, basically a collection of software managed by Portage in the home directory of any other distribution. Uh, I find this is a significantly superior approach. It allows you um, a lot of flexibility. So I can do this no matter what software is installed on the host system. I cannot r- run a Docker image if they don't have Docker installed. And by the way, Docker also requires a lot of kernel modules. So it's not that easy to simply assume that whatever host you're going to run on has Docker. Uh, especially you might not find Docker on a lot of supercomputers. But with this prefix approach, basically you're much more independent, uh, you're much more flexible, uh, and you have no overhead, meaning that there is no additional cost or quasi almost no overhead, no additional cost to running it. Uh, and of course you get all of the benefits of Gentoo, which I guess you would also get in, in a Docker image, which is the image of a Gentoo system, uh, except it's binarized. So you wouldn't even know what's inside until you open it. Um, did, did you like my Docker rant? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it went quite deep in there. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's known as the Docker rant. I like to tell it to people simply because very many people are using it. So I think it's a relevant topic, but I do think it has notable problems which people overlook simply because it appears very easy on, on the surface of it. Yeah. Yeah, because we asked this question on purpose, because before your episode, we interviewed someone yeah, who is claiming you can use Docker and Air, and he called it Rocker to get reproducibility in statistics. So it's quite interesting because he is pro Docker. And then there we have your episode, which is a little bit against or saying Docker is not the best or the only thing to do. I mean, I, I'm not fundamentally against it, but I, I, I'm vividly aware that it has a number of drawbacks, which for me make it an unoptimal and non-sustainable solution for the reproducibility issue. Yeah, you would need to distribute the Docker files, the the, the sort the the building scripts for for your Docker image instead of distributing a Docker image. That would solve part of the problem. Which which then might uh, might lead you to the question of why on earth would you still be using Docker? <laughs> so my solution to this conundrum which is what we're currently working on, or we have been working on, a student and myself, is uh, the concept that uh, if you do have a new data analysis pipeline or script for your research, or the kind of thing which you might want to link in a paper, that alone can be best treated as a software package. So the way we distribute that is we simply make an e-build, which is the package atom of Gentoo, which is basically a collection of variables, and that is basically what you share. So uh, a file with uh, a minimal number of kilobytes, which you can easily distribute along the paper. And anybody who has Portage, by the way, this doesn't mean that you need to have Gentoo. As I've told you, you can run Portage inside your user space on, on any distribution, uh, can get access to precisely that software with all of its dependencies in a very, very, very transparent fashion. Okay. Um, in the Gentle Linux for Neuroscience uh, project, uh, you're involved in the project. Uh, how many people are involved uh, in the project? Is there a community around it or just like a handful of volunteers? So the one of the reasons why we don't want to be anything else than, than Gentoo, uh, simply Gentoo for Neuroscience, but not a separate distribution, is that our community is basically the Gentoo community. Uh, so I wouldn't know exactly, like if I'd have to count all of the people who've ever contributed, it would be a dozen, more than a dozen even. So these are just the contributors, not the users. Uh, so quite a few. Um, most of them, sorry, most of them, I might add, wouldn't even know what Neurogento means if you told them. It's, uh, it's just that they saw a bug or they wanted one package, which has some, some sort of neuroscientific application, and then they decided to write the e-build or improve the e-build. Uh, so our community is the Gentoo community. Uh, sadly, I can't tell you a lot about usage uh, because um, I don't have access to any good usage statistics from Portage. So I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure in, in how far that's really possible, uh, like to determine um, how, um, how many people use a certain package simply because once people have the instructions, it's up to them in their own enclosed environment what they're going to download. So we, we don't really have a good angle on, on who is using what. But definitely everybody who has contributed it has used it. Uh, and all of my students uh, have used it. And I'm definitely aware of a group in uh, New Zealand at the University of Auckland, I believe, who uses it. Uh, so I'd say uh, users, yeah, a few dozen, certainly, maybe even more anonymous users who just never say anything. And developers, perhaps a dozen or, or so, yeah. 
Okay, so how can one join the community and what are the main communication channels to reach you, report a bug or request a feature? So I might add one thing to the previous question. Um, there's also a lot of users who use it without knowing it simply because they use the systems which I manage at the University of Zurich. Uh, these include people who visit the conferences which we hold and lectures which we hold. So taking them into account, the usage number would uh, definitely be a few hundred uh, at least uh, simply because these events are generally big. But of course, these people are so they're definitely using the features they're just not interfacing with them directly. Um, to get back to this question you've asked, namely how to get in touch with me or with the community. As I said, the, um, the community is the Gentoo community. So if you need support for anything related to the general package management, that's the Gentoo IRC channel. Uh, there's, of course, the mailing list and the forum, which you can use. I just don't know much about them because I never do. If you want to contact us in particular, generally you would do it because you have a very specific issue to what happens when you're trying to emerge one of the packages which we maintain. And the best way to do that is uh, via Gentoo Bugzilla, or which would be actually quite a bit more convenient for me, although it's not like the, the proper way of addressing the bugs. <laughs> it's um, over the um, issue tracker on the GitHub page of the repository. So that would be the general science repository, which you can find on Google simply by typing Gentoo Science GitHub, or that could be specifically the neuroscience repository, which you could type on, on Google simply by typing NeuroGentoo GitHub. Uh, the, the lines between them are fuzzy in that they're basically contained in each other. So it's a sort of, of matryoshka. But uh, either way, we're going to find your issues. That's not going to be a problem. We're, we're stalking GitHub quite, uh, quite thoroughly. Okay, so if I found a bug or want to provide a new package, mm -hmm. which skills would be required for me to contribute to the project or yeah, submit a bug fix or a new installation script? So I'd say reading is definitely important and uh, also typing is important because you're going to have to type, um, type text into the variable fields of the e-build. So um, if you want to try and write an e-build yourself, uh, you can simply... Um, copy one of the other e-builds uh, and see uh, how you can replace the values which the value with the values of your package. Uh, the complexity, as I said, for very many packages, I'm particularly familiar with a lot of Python packages right now, uh, which a lot of modern neuroscience packages tend to be, uh, is quite low simply because the package management uh, so, um, package uh, portage of Gentoo already knows how to deal with those packages. So basically, all you have to tell it is... Um, Where do I get the code from? That's a link to um, a tarball or a zip file from GitHub. So whenever you have a release, you basically have a link to the code of that release and you need to tell it that it's a Python package. Uh, and that's about it. Uh, in most cases, that alone will uh, will be the Gentoo package. So in, uh, in two lines of copy-paste, you've contributed the software package to what is allegedly one of the most uh, complex Linux distributions. <laughs> okay good we'll switch a bit uh focus to go more into the um, the open science aspect we'd like to know what is your vision about floss and its importance for the openness of science hmm. so i think floss is quite crucial to the openness of science uh and i think this is quite invariably and naturally and inevitably so simply because Floss embodies the, the same concepts which define good research, right? So 
good knowledge in the terms of uh, of scientific knowledge, right? Uh, means that you should be able to share it with your colleagues, right? Uh, it means that you should be able to criticize it, which mean, would mean try to edit it and test it if the knowledge still works after you've made your own creative input. Uh, and this is basically the same thing which uh, which Floss says uh, about um, working with the software. Um, as I like to say, there's really not a fundamental difference between scientific knowledge and the kind of knowledge which goes into um, into designing software. Uh, and Floss just happens to be uh, a software representation of the same concepts which make good science, which are openness, transparency, and collaboration. Uh, so I think FOSS is inevitably instrumental to free and open science. Okay, so let us play the two-sentence game again. What is the most important feature of Gentoo Linux for neuroscience which researchers could benefit from? In my view, it's the seamless management of live software. I can't elaborate, but I think that that captures it, yeah? Yeah. Uh, do you think that FOSS could have negative impacts on science? It's it's interesting. Like whenever you 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 ask a question, you do have a sort of uh, like concept which you incorporate in the question. And I think it's it's a bit uh, fuzzy. So I mean, uh, the question was: Do you think that uh, using floss has an, a negative impact of sci on science? Right? Do you mean only using floss or also using floss? It's up to your interpretation. We would say. Okay. Uh, well, I, I can like make the logic combination and give you an answer to each sub-question, which might result. The question which I'd first like to answer is, do you think that only using FLOSS could have a negative impact on science, simply because the answer to all of the other variations is no. So let's go through them. Do you think that also using FLOSS has a negative impact on science? No. Uh, do you think that uh, also using FLOSS could have a negative impact on science? No. Uh, but do you think that only using floss could have a negative impact on science? That's very interesting. That's a cool question. Um, so I think, yes, it definitely could. Simply because as soon as you're saying only, you're you're bringing something more than simply the decision of, uh, like the specific decision into, into play. Because if you say always, you can always decide if you're going to use floss or something else based on the specific situation which you're in. Uh, if you say only... Uh, then you're basically asking a scenario where you would have to use something which is not floss in science. And sadly, I well, not sadly, perhaps, yeah, I, I simply can. Um, there are a couple of scenarios. So one would be, let's say a company uh, has uh, developed a sort of algorithm or implementation which is proprietary um, and which can do a lot of cool things which none of the other things can do, right? Uh, and of course, a free and open source software will catch up as it always has. And in the long term, um, you should use free and open source science to solve that issue. Uh, but in the immediate term, especially if you're in a situation where your grant money is running out or, or at your, the very end of your PhD and you want to get out one more paper, uh, then I think the benefits uh, of uh, using uh, the proprietary infrastructure to address the issue do somewhat outweigh the, the long-term detriments of doing so. Because, of course, there are long-term detriments associated to it, because even for yourself, your work will no longer be reproducible or not, not be particularly sustainable if you tie yourself to a proprietary solution. But I do think there are very specific cases where you could make a temporary exception uh, to use proprietary software. Having said that, I don't know of such a case. Uh, it could happen in principle, I think, uh, but I've never met one. Um, 
the other the other scenario would be um the length of your involvement with the project and your technical competence uh, so if you're working so to say on uh, making a specific statistic for some some national bureau and so on and uh, you only have a very limited time to do that uh, and you have like some colleagues which can show you how to do it in uh, in there's a really bad proprietary statistics program I'm thinking of, but uh, in, in some proprietary statistics uh, package, which is very popular, uh, then uh, maybe you should actually go for that. Because if you don't already know how to use Floss, uh, and that will cost you like half an hour, as I said, to get your first piece of neural Floss going on Gentoo, uh, and you don't have that half an hour, maybe you should just go with... Um, with a proprietary statistics package. But I think it's always a compromise. It's just that in some cases, the compromise might be warranted. Okay, interesting. So would you consider yourself more of a pragmatist than an idealist toward philosophy? Definitely, definitely. Another thing which I like to tell people when I try to uh, preach the gospel of floss is uh, that I'm not trying to preach the gospel of floss. Um, I like to tell them oh, freedom is amazing. Um, I love freedom. I think it's so important in so many aspects of life. And I think that it trumps so many other values. Uh, but uh, at some point, you have to decide, is freedom your tool or is freedom your god? Uh, and as soon as freedom is your god, you have to ask yourself if you're still free. Uh, for me, freedom is definitely a tool. Uh, so I'm definitely more of a pragmatist than an idealist. And I think if you are an idealist, Uh, you might, man, might end up making a lot of the wrong choices in the free and open source community, especially in science, simply because science is about obtaining knowledge and getting things done, not about propagating your own ideology, even if it's as, as noble an ideology as freedom. Yeah, good answer. And as a last question, we want to ask Oliver Interviewee, what is your favorite text processing tool? It's uh, sometimes LaTeX and it's sometimes Markdown. So a mix of both? Yeah, well, I'm, no, a mix of both is horrible because you, you have to <laughs> transfer a lot of information from one form to another. Uh, no, I, I like LaTeX. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, it's the only way to get good documents. Uh, and it's the only way to get good and reproducible documents simply because by using tech. And I'd like to give a shout out to an amazing researcher and coder called Geoffrey Poor, who writes a software package called Python Tech, which lets you call Python scripts from within LaTeX, uh, which makes LaTeX, well, I mean, he tries to extend it to other languages. I don't know if he's gotten there, but definitely works in LaTeX. Or maybe he already did it, but I didn't benefit as much from it. Uh, but the, the, the point is, it's very easy to incorporate Python script execution in LaTeX and to have reproducible documents in the sense that uh, you recompile again, Uh, and that basically runs the entire analysis again. That basically means that in, in that software package I was talking about, which you could distribute along with your paper, you could distribute the paper. Yeah. Uh, and that is amazing. It's a bit more difficult to do it in Markdown simply because, uh, Markdown is less rich, but Markdown is also a lot easier, meaning that if, if I have to read through a LaTeX document, which has a lot of figures and tables inside, it's going to get really annoying. And I mean, okay, tables aren't handled that that much more elegantly in Markdown, actually not at all. But when I read through a Markdown document, that's a lot easier. So I think Markdown has easier syntax. Whenever I'm not trying to do a reproducible document or a super official looking document, I go for Markdown because it's easier. 
But for everything else, I think LaTeX is the way to go. Okay. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we conclude this interview? No, actually nothing else except that if you if you found any of this interesting and if you're wondering uh, where Gentoo can come in and shape the future of free and open science and free and open source software for science, we are actually working on this. So this is not my main research topic, but uh, my last student has actually primarily been focusing on this and we will be publishing a lot of this. The question remains open in what kind of journal simply because this is not the, the usual topic of interest for scientific journals. Uh, but there's going to be a lot more about this. So if you want to keep up, uh, I'd say the best way is to try and follow me on on uh, on ResearchGate. And you can get all of my contact info and links to everything I've done and I've talked about by visiting my webpage, which is Chimera, so C-H-Y-M-E-R-A. I know it's misspelled, but it's misspelled intentionally, dot .eu. Uh, and you can get all of the links there. Okay, we'll have a link to that in our uh, show notes as well. This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore Debras or both of us at Philosopher Science. Also, we are on iTunes, Stitchers, and Google Play Music. You can help us by leaving comments and rating to help new listeners discover our shows. Our website is located at philosopherscience.github.io where you can find more about our contact informations and a link to our GitHub page where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. You can get our MP3 and AUG RSS feed on our website. We are actively looking for contributors, especially for people in different branches of science for future episodes. Due to our background in mechanical and computational engineering, we may not be aware of all of the software available in other branches of science. Feel free to enlighten us with suggestions from your fields of research. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see all of you in our next episode. Bye. Bye.